Welcome to Making It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will bring you an inspiring person to help you improve in all areas of your life. We'll be chatting with friends old and new who have incredible stories and experiences to share. We'll be listening to some of their obstacles and how they've shown resilience to overcome them. Each episode should give you value and influence and inspire you to your greatness. Hello and welcome to uh, Making It Happen. Uh, My name is Tom Dalton, I'll be your host. We're on episode number eight, which is fantastic. And I know there's been a bit of delay in the last couple of podcasts, but I'm delighted to be back. And today I'm joined by... How to introduce this man, um, I'm delighted to say I networked him at an NLP course, but some of you might know him as a speaker, an author and a mentor. I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Daly. How are we doing? Tom, delighted and looking forward to, to having this conversation as we talked to beforehand over the next 40 odd minutes or so. Absolutely. And normally it's the other way where normally you've interviewed me a couple of times now. So it's great to actually nab you. Mike. For people that don't know you, what we normally do in the podcast is we try and go back to the start and where it all began. So before speaking and the two books published, and I'm sure you're going to be multiple publishing more books, and now into your mentorship and coaching, where did your self-development journey begin? I suppose for me, I can think straight back to being in school and uh, come up towards the Leaving Cert, started to look at where you're going after this, what are the options, what are you going to do? And uh, went to school in Finglas, good school, good, good, good people, still in contact with a lot of them from there. And I heard uh, a monk come in and talked about the life of the monks and what monks did. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. I said, God, I wouldn't mind trying that. That sounds like that sounds so left of centre. And I spoke to him afterwards. He said, well, look, we're having a weekend. Why don't you come along? So I went along. And the one thing we didn't talk about, Tom, was monks and religion and life. We actually talked about who are you, who do you want to be, and how are you going to get there? So it was the perfect introduction to personal development. It wasn't that they didn't want you to go on to become a monk. It wasn't that they didn't uh, care right away. They did. The only thing was they cared more about you as a person and the person you were going to be in the world. So for me, that was abs- from then on, I started reading personal development books. I started going to do more courses. And about uh, six months, nine months later, it actually led to becoming a monk myself. Wow. Um, so before we get into becoming a monk, um, was that a tough question to answer at that time, at that age? I, uh, where, what do you want to become and where do you want to be? Like, Yeah, Tom, I think it's a very tough question to be asking people in their, in their late teens, even early 20s. What is it that you want to do? And I never seen it as something that I want to do for the rest of my life. It just seemed a natural progression. At, at this time, what is it that I would like to do? Because I wouldn't mind trying out that life. So I never seen it for the rest of my life or now it could well have been for the rest of my life. I didn't know that. It just seemed the next step, having finished school, would be to try that. And if that lasted one week, one month, or in this case, it lasted eight years, I had no idea. And I've kind of lived my life that way. So if you know, take the next step in front of you, whether they're big, small, and asking people, uh, particularly at that age, what it's like. People, I, I work with people who are in their 40s and their 50s and they don't know what they want to do. Or they now know that they want to do something different, but they don't know what that is. So if they're struggling with all their knowledge, and perfectly brilliant that they are struggling and asking them questions, and I love it that they're asking them questions because I get to sit and talk with them. The whole thing is, for me back then, it wasn't that difficult to answer because I didn't see it as a lifelong question, for the want of a better way of saying it. Yeah, it's very interesting that you actually say that, that 
sometimes I think people think once you do one career or whatever choice, that's it. It's stuck to you forever. When you made that decision to study to be a monk, was there pressure from family or friends or what was the environment like? What was the environment, Tom, back then, my family would have said, look, if this is what it is that you want to do, then go for it. If it's not what you want to do, then don't go for it. So they, they, they kind of played a free hand. They said, look, you just go for it. It's your life. Yeah. Now, they wouldn't have used them words like you get one crack at it. That would have been their attitude. It might have been the words they used. But if this is what you want to do, it's your life, you go for it. Once it's your decision. And it was. So they were happy for it. Friends, they were kind of, they, well, they, you know, back we were young. We were 18, 19 years. They just wanted you to do the best that you could. Without, again, using them words. If that it is. And I, and I do remember someone kind of mocking it. And one of my mates who I didn't expect jumped right in there. I said, what's your problem? What's your problem? Tell you, that's a brave decision. When's the last time you made a brave decision? And they played on a football team. And they said, Michael, that fella never makes a decision on the pitch. Because he always gets caught with the ball. So I don't. And I think, Tom, it was a very, like, I'm, I'm, like the conversation was much longer than that. And I was still in contact with him. He's still a good friend. And not that we talk about that. The whole thing was, that that's really what it came down to. He said, look, you know, he's made a decision. Whether we agree or disagree, it's not the one that we'd make. It's his one. Let him go off and do it. And we'll stand by him for that. And they did. Yeah, there's massive value on that. I think, like, even just you saying that there about being brave, sometimes it's some of the hardest things to do in life, you know, and make those decisions. So, Michael, if I was someone that never knew what a monk was, break it down in a very simple form and watch a study to learn. There was, there was really, if you, if you were to break it down, in, there was really three things that you broke down. A better understanding of you as a human person. And... That went into three things, and it was the whole alignment of uh, body, mind, spirit. So it was look after your body, look after your body physically, look after your mind. And that was down to what you read, who you spent your time with, and then there was the spiritual. And that was, and this might sound crazy, that was whether, regardless who your God was, that there's a spiritual element to your life, that there's a, 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 a beyond you. So th- what they really did was they got you to look at yourself and develop as a person in body, mind and spirit. So physically, they got you to work out and look at your diet and what you were eating. They got you to make sure that you moved. Healthy body, healthy mind would have been kind of the mantra at the time. They then got you to look uh, intellectually. So they wanted you to study. They wanted you to study areas that were of interest to you. So they always encouraged that. And a lot of that would have been around personal growth and development. They wanted you to have a good mind, a clear mind, a clean mind. And then the spiritual, you got to, you got to practice. And Tom, are, are you here? And it's not, and I don't want to get into that intellectual discussion around mindfulness and meditation. There's a very clear difference between mindfulness and meditation. And back then, we would have practiced both mindfulness and meditation. And they definitely weren't one and the same. There are overlaps. So in that sense, that was the spiritual. And they would have been the three areas. And that's what you did as a monk, basically. And then what you did with that was you brought that out into the world to make the world a better place for having you, having you in it, basically. Two things with that. Um, first off, what did you find most challenging about the experience? And then did you have any perceptions going into it or did you just go in with a clear mind and I'm just going to embrace this all? I suppose like, I, I kind of went in with a sense of naivety. No, he didn't. I, I, I just thought this. I probably went in. There was, a, there certainly was a spiritual element of it. I, I, I enjoyed the spiritual side. So, look, you know, I really want to go in there and explore that, and I want to study theology, and I want to, 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 to come to a greater understanding of that. There was also the element of, um, 
I loved the works that they were doing. They had this thing, and I didn't. I know the term now. I didn't know it then. Was a preferential option for the poor. It was always to give the underdog the break. No matter what happens, always give them the break. Always stand by the underdog, and that passion, regardless of the cost, and that, as you say, is a very, very brave thing. Extremely brave thing, and getting harder to do, I think, because there's so much conformity going on now. And I, I went in with that naivety that I wanted to explore the spiritual, and I also wanted to look at how it is I could place myself best in the world. And that, that was really it. And I knew this was the place to be. So other than that, I, how we were going to do that, I didn't know. And who was going to do it with us, I didn't know. So there was, there was an element of adventure as well. Like I was 19 years of age. If this didn't work out, I could walk out a week later. I was under no pressure. Yeah, I could leave. So like in that sense, um, it was harder to leave than it was to join. Because you'd spent eight years there. You were up for final vows. After your second year, you took vows for a year. Poverty, chastity, obedience. And then you did eight years, uh, you did six years of that, so that was eight, and then you made final vows. And I said, this is not where I want to be for the rest of my life. So you had to weigh up, having studied for eight years. Now, their whole thing was, whatever you got from this eight years, that's what you're bringing into the rest of your life. And that just cleared it, just cleared it up. So it says, this is just, your next step is to move on. And once that's a whole-hearted decision, there was no issue there. So, Tom, I went in with a sense of, there was a sense of an adventure as well. And I'm, I'm wide-eyed and, and open to that. The hardest part, I think, was you did two years, great environment, and then you go out into the world. And I was working with homeless people, homeless young people at the time. I was working with homeless young people. and was also going to college. And it was kind to get... So I'd been in... There was uh, 20 of us in the class doing uh, social care. 10 guys, 10 girls. Uh, very specifically done that way. So you got the best... You got the yin and the yang. You got the best of everything. And I went, and I would have found that quite challenging in the sense that you're going back to a monastery where other people are going back to their homes or back to their own places. So basically, what you had is you had 19 people living a similar lifestyle, and you were living one. Now they were great, and some of them are my best friends to this date, still are my best friends to this date, uh, 25 years later. Um, so there was so there was an appreciation of the life that I was living and trying to let them so. It really, it was time to go back to your monastery and live the life of a monk. And yet, I, 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 and I don't mean it's a cliche. It's like, be in the world, yet don't be of the world. And I found that quite challenging. Um, when you mention the term the monk, a, bunk, a book comes to mind for me, The Monk Who Sold Us Ferrari. I'm yeah, sure you yeah, know quite yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And I was recommended uh, very early on in, yeah. I suppose, my business or entrepreneurial career, whatever you want to call it. And... You actually hit on three points there when you're talking about the monastery and it's about healthy body, healthy mind, healthy spirit. That's nearly what every coach or if I see on social media is talking about. Get your body right, get your mind right and business and spiritual and things will come. And it's interesting to think that's what you are practicing all these years. When you came decision to move on and you get into the social working aspect, was there always a drive to help other people or people that were less fortunate? Did that come from the monastery? I think in terms of, it, it came from both. Tom, it came from my family. My father was a tra- involved in trade unions. He would have been always for the underdog. He would have been always uh, give someone a break and always stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. It, it wasn't piety. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a self-satisfaction. It was a genuine concern for those who maybe didn't get the opportunities in life that you got. And to be always grateful for what you have and help those who don't. And if you can help someone out, do it. Under, you know, Just do it. Don't question it. And even if it does come at a cost to you, which it might often do, 
go and do it anyway because you'll never you'll never blame yourself for doing the right thing you might blame yourself at times for doing the wrong thing so I got it from the home and then I think in the monastery they they, they were always you know are you doing the right thing for the wrong reasons or are you doing the wrong thing for the right reasons so they were very clear about if you're going out into the world and it is that you want to help other people make sure it's not about you that it's not you're not trying to fill some void in your life or some gap in your life or you don't feel good about yourself so how you'll feel good is by helping others well then you might be doing the right thing but you're doing it for the wrong reason so they would have challenged that at a much deeper level and do you, do you see a lot of that today? Would you notice that tendencies in people maybe doing charity work or helping the less fortunate to fill a void? Tommy, you try not to judge because you don't know okay. what's going on for yeah. people. You really don't know what's going on. So I, I wouldn't judge people in that sense. It's you know, you, 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 I never question someone's motives for why, why it is that they're there. I suppose all you can do is ask it of yourself. And that's what we were told to do. And that's what we were trained to do. And that's what we were shown. Now, I sit down with people and maybe they want to look at the careers that they want to go into or they want to change career or want to change their work. And I'll always get into what is the motivation behind that or what is it that they're trying to do. So there's a lot of work going on out there, Tom, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge people or I wouldn't, I wouldn't for one moment propose as to, or, you know, as to why it is that someone's doing the work that they're doing. And, Michael, when you left the monastery, was it a, what was next for you? I left... And I was in social work at the time. I was I was working in a, in a youth and community project, and I stayed on in my job there. That 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 was a a, a job that I held on to for a couple of years. Stayed there for a couple of years. Did further study during that time as well. We seen that the the social care side and the social work side has been very um. That was Tom. That was the 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 soft skills side of it. And then not long after leaving the monks, I went and I studied and did a postgrad in public administration because I wanted to get the hard skills, the the HR side, the accountancy side. So so you had you had a combination of both. And I did that. And then just as soon as I finished that, I got the job within the organisation. I became manager of uh, the youth service in Finglas. So I went over to Finglas for a couple of years as the manager there. Loved it, Tom. Absolutely loved it. And it was great. So I went to school in Finglas. So I had great friends from Finglas. And I did that for a couple of years. And then what happened was I got to the summer, got to one summer, maybe three years in, and uh, I got to take a month off. And I went away and I did read some books, did some course, went to a place called Skiros in, in, in Greece and did some, some courses over there. And I came back and I said, you know what it is, I do enjoy my job, but there's so much more that I like to be doing that I wasn't getting to do. And that was around the young staff there. I was a young guy myself too, in fairness, but young staff there, brilliant staff. And I wasn't giving them any time because I was sitting on committees, I was sitting on boards, I was chairing stuff. So I said, this is not where I'm meant to be right now. This is not where I really want to be. So, and uh, what would make you go? And I felt if I went, it would be because that the skills and talents I had would be better served with regard to mentoring, coaching, training. The very stuff that I wasn't getting to do in the job that I was doing because it was mostly admin. And as I say, sitting on committees and stuff. So... I uh, said, okay, if I stay, what's the benefits of staying? Well, it's permanent and it's pensionable. And this would have been, this would have been 99, before pre-Celtic Tiger. So there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of jobs out there and a lot of people were still emigrating at that stage, maybe starting to come back at that stage a little bit. So I got to Christmas and right, I was always taught, Tom, never make a lifetime decision in January. If you're going to make a decision, do it well in advance of January. Uh, so I said, look, I'm going to have to make a decision, but do it before Christmas. And if I don't, then I'll, I'll push it off till the, the following Easter or whatever. So we got to Christmas and said, no, no, look, well, if I go back there, it's simply and solely because it's permanent and pensionable. And how could I ask and tell and encourage people to believe in themselves 
and go for it in their own lives if they weren't prepared, if I wasn't prepared to do it myself. So I came back in in January, went in and met me, my own immediate boss and handed in me notice. And uh, I handed in me notice and the first question that, uh, that she asked, brilliant manager, absolutely brilliant manager, she said, uh, wait, who are you going to work for? I said, actually, I'm not going to work for anyone. Now, Tom, I actually want to get out of that room because I was so... And I've heard your own story. I've heard your own story about handing in your notice. I, I was so nervous, Tom, that I'd get talked out of it. So uh, I was they, they, a career break. Do you want to take a career break? Do you uh, want to transfer? Get me, offer me anything and everything. And I, and I said, look, no, I've handed in my notice and you're not going anywhere else, Michael. I says, no. So the director was actually away. Another great guy is in the States. Now, she, she, she's died since. And uh, she said, look, I'll tell you what, Michael, I'm not accepting it until I talked to the director. I says, that's okay. So this is between the two of us. Because I actually wanted my own staff to hear it from me. He says, yeah, nothing's going to happen. He's back in, I think it was a day or two days later. He'll be back. We'll have a chat. So two days later, I got a phone call, went in and met him. And he wanted to make sure everything was all right. Was I okay? Everything. And we, we're, we're still in contact. We're still friends. Um, as he's in the States. Years later, we told him to him, Michael, I thought you were sick. I thought you had cancer. And you were handing in your notice. And, we, and if that was the case, we would have done something for you. And I've no doubt that they would have. We just I said, Jim, I was so nervous. I didn't want to get talked out of it. So I know, I know that now, all right. But back then, we just couldn't understand why you would do it. And is that just, Michael, is that a old school perspective and we have to keep the job and Monday to Friday and it has to be pensioned when we have a wage coming in? Is that was the time back there 20 years ago, Tom, yeah. That would have been 99, that would have been there. That would have been if you got a job that was permanent and pensionable, you'd, you'd won the lotto. That was pre-lotto. I don't think the lotto was out then, but it would have been, that would have been like the lottery. And where I grew up, when I did the leaving in 85, you know, if you got a job in the civil service or got a job in Dublin Airport, which was close to us, or a job in the bank, by God, you held on to it. And you held on to it for the next 40 years. And, and it was, Tom, like you, it was like winning the lotto. Yeah. So uh, why would you walk away from a permanent pension? And it was, it, I laugh at it now, it was one, it was one of the, the, the good pensions, as they say, it was the fine benefit pension, which you can't get now, or they're, like they're gold us now to get. So they just couldn't understand it. And uh, my own boss was, was a civil servant on succumbing to the organisation. So she was going to be there for life. So that was the whole thing. And we went out and had dinner afterwards and we talked about it. And she says, I suppose things are changing now. People are having two or three jobs in their lives. Now we know it's multiple jobs. But 20 years ago, Tom, no, it was, it was permanent and you held on to it. So what was next then? You left? I left. I went working for myself. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And the Tough. F- it was the first year or two. I, I tell you what I found tough in the first year or two was... Um, uh, I'm a people's person I like being with people I like conversation I like chat now I was working on my own so you you didn't have the same social interaction with people and if you rang up and said something can I meet you for a coffee it was like you had a problem or there was something wrong well, just once one up just me for a coffee and make small talk or, or when I'd been in the organisation working if people were going for a coffee you could go and have a coffee with them and just not even talk but you could be part of it so I found that tough for the first year or two, just that, that sense of isolation, that sense of loneliness. Um, the, the gas thing, Thomas, the organisation which I was working for brought me back to do the very things that they couldn't employ me to do because they didn't have a funding stream for a permanent pension employee at that time. So they had funding to do other stuff. So I was able to go back and do the mentoring, do the coaching, do the training. And I got to do that. Did that up until uh, 2011. The crash came in 2007, hung in there for a few years, hung in there, hung in there, and then got to 2011. I, uh, uh, what happened actually in 2010, I was invited to give a course in Germany at Nordhausen University, and that led to the writing of the first book. So uh, I, um, 
I started writing the book late 2010, 2011. 2011 was a tough year because there was so little work out there now. There was so little money out there. And the stuff that I would have been doing would have been seen as surplus to organisations. So got to the summer and now it was starting to kick in. And uh, in September, my old boss, the, the director, rang me and says, look, we have a guy going on career break from the youth service in Finglas, the manager's job, your old job. Will you come back and do it for a year? So I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to go back after all these years. And I noticed he'd never go back. In, in that situation, it actually worked for me. I went back, had a year in Finglas managing the youth service. That did a number of things. It gave me, it gave me an income, which was brilliant. Uh, it also then it gave me um, structure so I could write, could do it before work or in the evening after work. Um, wasn't worried about getting work in or chasing money. Wasn't worried about, uh, um, you know, you might have a good week one week and, and, and be out there. Uh, working all the time, and then the following week have nothing, so you write all week. The, look, writing was new to me at that time, and the one bit of advice I got about writing was write every day. So if you're chasing work and you're going after work and grabbing it, that, that was a little bit difficult. So it brought a whole structure, and I got back to go back to my old job 12 years later. So I went back and did that for a year, and then um, uh, still working away in a book, and uh, another vex came up in the organisation, another manager, uh, managing another youth and community project. So I went and did that for a couple of years, and then in 2014, my first book came out and uh, it took a lot longer to write than I had thought. Launched it, sorry, didn't launch it in 20, brought it out in 2014. And one of the questions at the end of the book was, what is it in life that you really love to do that you're not getting to do? And why is that? So I actually had to ask myself that question. And the, the one thing that I, I wanted to do uh, for a number of years and I hadn't done it and I was asking myself now why was I read about a group of people Tom who had met in London and they'd spent six months driving the Silk Road to Sydney and I was always fascinated by the Silk Road that intercultural people coming together that trading working together um, it's totally non-judgmental having, having, to, ha- having to pull together to work together so I said you know I'm going to do that like I'm putting that off I've no re- the book is done now so I got myself set up and the following uh, uh, July, I took six months out. I was still in the job. I took six months out of the job and I um, flew to London. 14 of us took off for six months. And I was also at that time asked to write a second book because in the first book I talked a lot about success. And the first book took me four years to write. So I'm not going to give another four years to the next one. So what I did was I took off. Uh, spent the six months writing the second book in in the most unusual of circumstances, uh, crazy, mad. Sir, you couldn't make it up. Like uh, that saying uh, is sometimes true to strange in a fiction. Certainly was the case for me. So I took the six months, came back then in January of 2016, and six months later there was a reorganisation. There was a restructuring in the organisation, so it was a bit of a redundancy package. So I took that and went off, and then. Uh, I wrote, I literally then wrote and, and, and did the, the second book, you know, tidied it up with the publisher. But what also happened in that time was the first book was taken over by a publisher in England. So he wanted to publish it. And uh, we, we launched that then in 2018. And then in 2019, June gone, I launched my second book. And just to, the synchronicity and how things fall into place. The book is, is called Conversations in Singapore. I wrote the book in Singapore. I asked myself, having written it, who did I want to launch it? And I said, uh, do you know what it is? I loved the Irish ambassador to Singapore, to write it, for a number of reasons, that it was written in Singapore, there was an Irish connection, there was the international connection. My, my work brings me to, 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 to throughout Europe working now. So I said, that, that, that's what I want to do. And I went in, and like all good things, Tom, I used LinkedIn to see who the Irish ambassador was. 
seen who it was and I sent a connection request and didn't hear anything back. On a program that I've interviewed you on, uh, Making a Difference, I interviewed a guy that I had been in school with who's now with the Irish Wheelchair Association, uh, Chris Howey. So his interview just came out at that time and he put it up on Facebook because we had a, a school page which I didn't know about. And I went on, about 50 members, and I'm looking down and you know when you see a face, you know, but you don't know where you know that face from. So I know that face, I don't know where they're from. So I took the name again, put it into LinkedIn, and lo and behold, it's the Irish ambassador to Singapore. He'd been a year ahead of me in school, also from Finglas. So wrote to him, got in contact. The story around that absolutely couldn't, couldn't have done it quicker. And he was home then in June of this year. Um, he launched a book for me with the Lord Mayor, the Lord Mayor of Dublin. A, a week before the book was to be launched, also a lad from Finglas who was in school with us, but behind us. So he came along. So there was a whole natural flow to it there. And um, that's really what I've been doing over the last couple of years, getting them two books out there and promoting them as well and doing a lot of mentoring, of course. It, there's, there's lots of value in what you just said there, but like even just networking with people there and not giving up and using social media as a great tool there. I use it all the time in business or to get in touch with people and like if they don't get back to you the first time, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a handwritten letter. Maybe it's knocking on a door. Something else that's going to get you in front of them. Um just go back to 14 years, travelling the Silk Road. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, it, was, it, was, it was highs and lows. It was, it was crazy, Tom. It was absolutely crazy because uh, first two weeks, pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Drove to Turkey, good roads, back of a truck, got, got to Turkey, drove around Turkey. Uh, there was a bomb explosion in Turkey. We couldn't go to where it is that we wanted to go in Turkey, so we had to divert. And that, that, that was the sign of what was to come on this trip. So we said, OK, that's fair enough. Uh, from Turkey then into Iran, uh, got into Iran. Iran was an amazing country, amazing people and amazing experience. And I, I remember getting into Iran, Tom, and first day there, going for something to eat. And uh, one of the other lads I got on extremely well with, off we go. And we think we've ordered chicken. It wasn't chicken, Tom. We didn't know what it was. But the whole restaurant was looking at us. Because they were wondering, what are these two lads doing in this restaurant? And they couldn't have been nicer and politer because they were so grateful that Westerners would travel into their country. Like they said, that these don't have to be here. So uh, in we go, we're sitting down and we think we've ordered chicken and something came and the two of us are eating it. And we're looking, and everyone else is looking at us. So we know that there's something wrong here. So we're eating away, we're eating away. We couldn't eat it. We just could not eat it. So uh, uh, Dave says to me, he says, what do you think it is? I don't know. He says, I'll tell you what it is. He says, it's awful. He says, it's... it's so it's, it's the, like the lungs from the sheep. So we said, how do we get out of this? So he said, uh, to Dave, we had, we had a bit of crack. And Dave said to him, uh, didn't want to insult him. He says, uh, chicken. And Dave made the sign of chicken. And the whole place there, it just went silent. And the man said, no. He made the, the sound of it. Obviously, couldn't speak English. We couldn't speak Iranian. So he uh, made the sign or made the sound of a sheep. And we looked at each other. And Dave, as quick as a die, said, he blessed himself and says, I made a sign as we can't eat sheep. And he took the two plates away because he was afraid he didn't want to break our religion. Okay. So we said, oh, thank God for that. So uh, uh, that was grand. So we ate some bread and we drank some. They didn't. They, 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 um, the sanctions were on in the country. So they had their own kind of lemonade stuff. So we drank that. So we went up to pay and he wouldn't take it. And now, Tom, it was probably it was euros, a couple of euros each, less even. So we said, um, you know, no, no, we have to pay. So we had a big argument with him and we went to pay and he wouldn't take it. So we all shook hands, and, and I don't think we gave each other a hug, but we all shook hands, and, it was everyone, and everyone in the restaurant bowed their head and nodded, and we got, and went away. And because we were a group in Iran, you had to have a guide with you. 
So Mr. Raddy was our guide. So we explained this to Mr. Raddy. He says, lads, you did brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Until you walked out after the second time. So Iranians always refuse payment twice. It's when you offer it the third time that they take it. Oh, wow. So we, okay, right, we, won't be doing, we, we won't be eating awful again, and we will be offering three times in future. So that, that was Iran. You know, like, Tom, there were stories, multiple stories, like that, into Uzbekistan then, yeah, get into Uzbekistan, Sunday walking up the streets, and then the police come out from everywhere, absolutely everywhere. We're all blocked. And next thing, there's a car driving up, a big blacked-out Mercedes with army and security, and, and back in front and on side, and it's the president letting everyone know he's alive. They'd come from, they tried to kill him. And uh, the locals beside us, and they, we were throwing our eyes up saying, look, we, you know, and they were saying, look, we, they're not interested. He's not in that car anyway. They said, he's not in the car, but he's letting everyone know that he's alive. So the next day, we were, uh, we, we, we took off, we were, we were heading off to um, Turkmenistan. And uh, uh, we were told that uh, we couldn't go the way we were going because the, the fugitives had taken to the mountains. So uh, army everywhere. We had to go everywhere. Passports, out, guns everywhere. Everything. Now the thing, the, the great thing was, there were so many different passports uh, on the on the truck that we never got any hassle. Okay, they, they, they tried, but they wanted bribes. They wanted us to bribe them and pay them money, which we couldn't because it cost you too much. So that's so that. Was, and then you get into Turkmenistan, oh, it's a dictatorship, very very wealthy country, but an air of oppression. And the whole city was made from marble. Total. I've never seen anything like it before or since. Total total marble, but it was all a facade. It was all these beautiful buildings with nothing behind them. And again then, uh, you had army and police everywhere, but none of them were armed. Only the people around the president were armed. So there was no guns on the streets. And everywhere you went, uh, roadblocks, roadblocks, roadblocks. And they can close the city down. And now, we, we argued, should we, should we be in this country? And are we supporting dictators by being here? We said, look, no, not really. We're Westerners, we're passing through, we're talking to people, we're discussing with people, we're having chatting with people. So we're keeping, keep, keeping that open. Um, and we, we had a lot of discussions, and that was really the trip all the way to, 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 to Darwin and then driving across Australia. And was there any, like, massive takeaways or lessons you took from that trip? Was every day just a different learning experience? Yeah, I, 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 every day was a different learning experience because every day you were in perpetual motion. Like, I, like, we were gone for, for uh, I think it was 144 nights. I think we probably stayed in 100 different places. Two thirds of it was, in, was intense. We were camping on the Afghanistan border. Now, you're in the most bleakest of places. Here you are on the Afghanistan border and you're looking into villages and you're going, these people have nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, and yet they're getting on with their lives and doing what it is. And we as Westerners, like, to, like uh, on the, on the thing about the truck was you could only have one rucksack and the smallest tent possible so here you are with very little and getting by and then when you did get to to a, a, a hotel or a guest house you know the shower was just like gold dust here and a, a, a toilet using a toilet was like gold dust here and like for many times you'd you'd go into a place and the first question people ask you what what a toilet's like because you know and then you realize god what have we got going in the west and how little we actually need to have a good life. It's perspective is everything, isn't it? Tom, you're absolutely right. To put everything in perspective. Really and truly to put everything into Relationships, friendships, goals, drives, ambitions, where it is that you want to go. And truly, truly grateful to have the opportunity to take that time off. Have money in the pocket to do it and a group of people to do it with. And Mike, was there always a drive 
to publish a book or be an author or where did that come from? So I, I suppose like I've, I've always in, I've met very few people who don't want to write a book. I think most people do want to write a book. I, I suppose it was always there. And what happened was I was invited to, to Nordhaus University in June 2010 to give a course on leadership, self-leadership and looking at who we are in our lives as our own leaders and how we can create them in our lives and in our jobs. So I, I went over and Germany has a checkered history with leadership. So I went in and they said, look, you know what it is, Michael, let's just put it out there. Yeah, there's Adolf Hitler. We know about leadership. We're taught about leadership. We know about the Barack Obamas. We know about the Nelson Mandela's. Brilliant people. And then if you want to talk about the yin and the yang, then you have the other side. You have Adolf Hitler's and the Mussolini's. We know about these. Can we do something different? So we agreed. We were there for five days that what we would do is we would talk about leaders in our own lives. People that will never get to be written about, will never get to be discussed, that will never get any highlighted in their own life for what it is that they're doing. So we spent a week looking at that. And for them, it was, it was a parent, it was a colleague, it was a, a mentor that they maybe had on a football team or a, or a, a sporting team or a work a colleague or a, a group that they were involved in. So we spent the week doing that. And on the Thursday night, really basically, we had to then identify what it was the common traits between all of them. And that there were six common traits between all of them. Now, that was my job as the, the lecturer, facilitator, teacher, mentor, whatever it was to pull that together. So I, I needed time to go home or not back to the hotel and do that. So I get them an, 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 I get them an assignment every night. I get them an assignment that night that the person that they'd identified as being the leader in, the, in their life that made them the person who they are, they had to go and tell them. Now, someone had travelled to university, so it wasn't feasible to physically go and try to put, they could pick up the phone. If they wanted to, they could email them if they felt that was more appropriate. But they had to tell them that they had spent a week discussing them for all that was good about them and the impact they had on their lives. So, and then some of them obviously could go home and tell the people or could arrange to meet the people. So they were on emails, phones, messages were flying around arranging to meet people that night. We were excited about it. Uh, upbeat. So, and then there was a silence in the corner and there was a, a young woman there, totally silent, Tom, and she um, brought our attention so we looked around and they, there was a little, you could see the tear, you could see something was happening. She said, okay, calm down, folks. We got to, what's going on? The actual person in her life was her mother. And the mother had allowed her to be the person that she was. And she had big plans for life. And that was part of the week. How, 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 where are you going with your life and how are you going to get there? And her mother was dead. So how could she tell her mother? So what we agreed was to a person that we'd all take time out that evening to honour her own mother, whether that was by lighting a candle, whether going for a walk, singing a song, listening to a song, a poem. we all do that and she would do the same. But what she would now do is she would write to her mother as if she, she was alive and tell her what it was that, that meant to her. So we all went our separate ways and the next day, the energy in the room, I'm telling you, like it was phenomenal, just phenomenal energy. And there was a lot of tears the night before, a lot of hugging. There was people that said that they had never, they never realised the impact that they had had on other people. They never realised what it was that they had done. And they were shocked and delighted to have someone feeding this back to them. The young woman, obviously, um, was delighted and, we, and, and to a person. And we shared the poems that people had used and the songs that people and uh, we shared them. And we got, you know, the, the, the Internet, brilliant. We could get that out. So I played this song for your mum. So she got, you know, she, she got to honour her mother in her own way. Now, Tom, at the end of that, then the challenge was put down to me. And I, I, I had gone, obviously, the night before, and I had looked at the six traits, and I'd come. These were the six common traits. And something struck me the night before. There was a person that either was or had been in my life 
that fitted one of them as being their predominant trait. And I thought to myself, well, wow, I've thrown them down a challenge. Maybe they'll throw me the challenge of now going and telling these six people. I'm sure I was delighted with myself because only two of them were in Ireland. So I, had, I was making all these plans in my head. My head was, talk about a healthy mind, Tom. I was visiting the world to visit these six people. And uh, I came in, but they didn't throw down that challenge. They said, look, I'll tell you what, Michael, the challenge is. You need to go and teach this course somewhere else in Europe. Didn't say Ireland, it's too easy. Somewhere else in Europe and give them what you've given us. So I said, okay, that's okay. Okay, I need to think about that. I've taken the course, course, the challenge, yep, I'll take it on. Wasn't sure how I was going to do it. No idea how I was going to do it. So we finished the course and I walked out of the room and the first person I met was Grazinia O'Sullivan, a Polish uh, uh, lady married to a guy from Cork who just so happened to be uh, in a university in Poland. And she says, Michael, what's, you know, you look a bit mystified and I know it's an emotional event, because she, you know, she, she, she knew what was going on. So it's Grazinia, they've thrown down a challenge that the course I've taught this week, I need to teach another university. She says, oh, that's grand. She'll come to Poland, so. <laughs> Tom, this was April and uh, I ended up in the university in Poland in November of that year, November uh, 2010, teaching the course. Exact same experience again. Uh, possibly somewhat even better in that I had time to work on the material and know where I was going with it. And also at the end of that week, um, they had done the challenge to go home, and then the challenge they came back in was that you, at the university you had to write up what happened during the week, but as an academic paper because it was a university. And they said, but Michael, the char- challenge to you is to write it, but don't write it as an academic paper. Take the, uh, put the heart into it, basically, they said. Right, you can write this as an intellectual exercise, what happened here. Put the heart into it. So I said, okay, there's a challenge there. Might have to do a bit of both because if you send it in and it doesn't meet the criteria, the university aren't going to publish it. So I went back to Ireland and I, and I wrote it. And I, um, I, wrote, up, I wrote it up as, as, as an academic paper, uh, taking on board what they said about putting the heart into it. And I was about to send it to Tom and Dale, a bit of insecurity, a bit of... Uh, 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 um, lack of confidence stepped in there. I said, God, what, what will they make of this? What happens if I get rejected? What happens if it's not good enough? All, all, all this stuff. So I a good friend in England who's a writer, and I just emailed him and said, look, I've been asked to write this paper. Would you mind just trying, throwing your eye over, just to see is it okay? Um, and uh, I sent it. And about three days later, he rang. And I wasn't expecting a phone call at all, Tom. I was expecting an email back, yeah, or you maybe need to do more of this or less of that, or, yeah, Michael, there's a good chance that'll be, that'll be re- rejected. Can you live with that? Because you're only doing what you were asked to do. And if you're happy to do that, I was expecting all this, Tom. And, uh, and I was set up to send it, and yet not knowing if I would send the kind of thing or did I need to change it. And the phone rang, and I picked it up, and uh, he, it was him, the author that I, I, I'd sent it to, uh, Nick, uh, Nick, uh, Nick Williams. And he, he said, um, uh, and I wasn't expecting this, Tom. I really wasn't. And he just he picked up the phone and said, yeah, Nick, he says, there's a book in that. Go write it. And he hung up. That was it. So I just pressed send. It went, and I kind of didn't give a whole lot of thought to it, Tom, at the time. I just stayed working on what it is that I was doing. And then I uh, um, got word back that the article I had written had been chosen as the lead article in the university publication. So I, I asked Virginia afterwards, I said, what was that? I said, Michael, because you had the academic and the personal, and they weren't used to that. That just absolutely true them. Because anything you said, you could back up academically. So if they, if they wanted to challenge you, they knew that they wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't win it, basically. They knew that what you had done with that group, you could prove, worked. 
So that just gave me the, that whatever whatever uh, impetus I needed to go and write the book. I just went and wrote the book then, Tom. And I just took the six traits and wrote and wrote, wrote, wrote the book based around them. And 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 that's that. Then that came out. And what happened was I was talking to a publisher at the time. It took much longer than I thought it would take to write. And basically, I, I blew the publishing team. Not, not not nothing to do with the publisher. That, I, I no issue with that. I just didn't write. I I wasn't. It was first book. Took longer. Got done. And then, as it turned out, the publisher did come in. And then Liberty's Press here in Ireland came in for my second book. Brilliant. Um, Mike, there's so much uh, information and what you just had to share in there. Um, I was delighted to be at the book launch, and it's an excellent read. And the one thing I do love about it is it's concise. It's Sometimes I pick up books and there's so much information for me to process is the hardest thing. And that's what I really like about this book. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into your second. It's very kind of you, Tom. Thanks very much. Um, for anyone that's listening, you mentioned everyone has a book in them. Is there any little nuggets of advice you'd give if someone was thinking to start to write a book tomorrow? Start writing. Okay. Just start writing. Like, that, like you, You'll find hundreds of reasons for not writing and, 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 and most of them will be logical and very good you're too busy you don't have time you don't have experience you don't have forget all that forget all that just start writing and keep writing and don't get rid of anything don't hold on to every bit that you write because you do not know where it is that you might use that again it might be in a course that you give it might be in a conversation that you have it might, it might well be in the book it might be well in someone else's book so just write every day and when it comes to time to show it to someone be very very careful who it is that you show it to and I, I would think Tom someone if at all possible that doesn't know you because they'll give you a much more honest appraisal so if that's if that if, 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 if there's three things I'd, I'd say Tom start writing don't get rid of anything and then when you're ready to show it to someone give it to someone who doesn't know you Um, when I, I kind of always ask this question on the podcast. It's kind of, I've led to this, um, and you've given a huge amount of opinion and value so far. Is there, what's the best piece throughout your life, or if you maybe can nail it down to one thing, of advice that you've ever been given by someone? I think the, the one piece, Tom, that I've been given, and it's one that I always try and, and use, and, and, and it's been written about, and I, I didn't know about it until, uh, I didn't know it had been written about until, and I heard that, was always start with the end of mind. Know what it is that you want, regardless of how and how you're going to get it. So if someone said to you they want to write a book, it's okay. Maybe then the first thing you do is get a cover. Get it to the very end and don't worry about the process in, in between. That's very challenging. Very, very hard thing to do. So it's start with what it is that you want and hope for. And do your best. And maybe the universe will support you in that. Maybe it'll challenge you. Maybe what you think is best for you isn't what the world has for you. And that's okay. Just start with the end of mind. The end of mind. That's great. Um, we do this at the end of every podcast. It's kind of like a quick fire round. Um, what would be your favorite movie or would you have a favorite movie? I do. I, 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 t in terms of movies, Tom, I, I kind of have just three movies. And, 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 and I love Casablanca because I think it has everything in it. It has betrayal, it has love, it has support, it has honesty, it has truth. I think, and it's a great film to watch. I love, I lo I love that. I, um, I, I tell you, Tom, I love uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I just think that whole thing of it goes beyond. Well, it was an absolute disaster when it came out because it kind of looked beyond the normal. Um, and then a, f a film that I love, Tom, is The Insider. And it's about about the whole cigarette industry being blown apart. And it, R R R Russell Crowe played the main part. And I think of people like 
that guy that did that, and people like Jerry McCabe, uh, Sergeant Jerry McCabe doing what they're doing, huge. And, and the older I get, the more I see how strong you have to be to be able to do something like that. So, uh, so they, they, they be the three films. Um, other than your own books, is there any gem book you'd recommend to anybody? I, Tom, I, I, I think like in terms of books, like, I, I could rec- I, 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 the one thing I do when I sit down with people is I look at where it is that they are now and what, like, so if, if, if the heart is the biggest thing that they need to get in touch with, we look at books around the heart. If the mind is the biggest thing, we look around that. If it's the soul, we look around that. If it's around being proactive. So different books at different times in, in, in life come in. At the moment, and, and the, the, I'm reading a book about, um, a British spy, true story in the thirties. Uh, uh, Philby, the the Philby, uh, the spy amongst us, and t- how it was that people refused to see what it was that was actually in front of them. They just couldn't believe that he could be a spy. And it, somewhere inside them, and I think it was Oprah Winfrey. Someone was telling me he said I didn't realize it was Oprah Winfrey. He says when someone reveals themselves to you, believe them. So cut through the maze and the hay. So if someone treats you well, recognize that and respect. If someone treats you badly. Don't make excuses for them. Respect that they have just shown them to you as to who they are. Believe it. Don't try and cover up. And here was a guy about a spy, and they just refused to believe it. And, 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 and the more brazen he got, the less they believed it. So for me, it's, and sometimes the answer can be right in front of you. Just choose to see it. So at different times, different books. So I, I would say to people, if what it is that you're struggling, and sometimes I genuinely believe this, sometimes the book chooses you. Go into a bookshop and you're saying, oh, I'm struggling with a relationship or I'm struggling with getting work or I'm struggling with, with parenting. Just go into the shop and just see what book jumps out with you. Yeah, absolutely. And then just last couple, Michael, um, is there anywhere you recommend in Dublin or Ireland that you love for a cup of coffee or a bite to eat? I do. There's, there's, there's two places that I, I, I love for, for both of them. And Tom, my mother, I'm grateful my mother's still alive and I try and get over to her. I do actually, don't try, I do get over once a week. And when I do call over, we'll always go for something to eat. And it's a place I love. It's Anderson's just off Crifford Avenue. It does lovely food. And then you have uh, the Petite on Ballymun Road. does lovely coffee. So if you just want a coffee and a bit of cake. So, th- so th- they'd be the two gems that I always go to. Brilliant. And uh, Mike, just to finish off, first of all, thank you so much for this. Um, where can people find you or where can people connect with you? The website is probably the best place. It's, so it's, it's uh, Michael Daly Ireland. Just go to michaeldalyireland.com and, and you'll get me there. Books, Tom, are obviously involved in, in Bookshop. The Six Traits of Self-Leadership are Conversations in Singapore. They're in bookshops. Um, and then uh, the website, if they want to get in contact with michaeldalyireland.com. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate having you. Thanks so much. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure and I, I'm, I'm disappointed that it's over, to be honest <laughs> with you. I know. Time's up. Cheers, Michael. Thanks, Tom.